World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Okay, so here we are with another episode of the World of Work podcast, and we've got a really fantastic conversation lined up today. Um, We're going to be speaking to Kao Moody, uh, KG, um, from uh, India. She's going to be speaking to us today about cognitive biases, and we're going to be exploring what cognitive biases are, maybe looking at some of the ways that they shape our thinking about some of the big issues of our times, and, and then reflecting a bit on what we can do as individuals and leaders and managers in the workplace with this knowledge to perhaps change the way we work uh, somewhat for the better. Um, before we get into all of that, though, KG, could you introduce yourself to the audience and say a bit more about yourself and your background and what you're working on? Hi, James. I'm so excited to be here. So thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm Kaumudi Goda. As you've said, I go by KG as well. I'm fairly relaxed about how you call me. I'm an Indian national by origin. I currently live in Singapore. I lived in the United States previously for many years where I practiced as a lawyer. Today, I'm a founder. I founded the Human Conversation, co-founder of the Inclusive Leaders Institute and the Director for Diversity and Inclusion on the Executive Board for the Data Visualization Society. So I'm a people, culture, and leadership strategist, conflict management specialist, executive coach, diversity and inclusion expert. And as you can tell, I have a running list of things I'm passionate about. And I'm really excited to talk to you today about one of my passions, cognitive bias and the impact that has on decision making. Brilliant. You know what? I, I love a variety of things that you bring. I, I always find that conversations with people with a, a breadth of experience in, in their careers and a breadth of interests um, are, are powerful because you get all that sort of intersectional learning from the different areas of life. And I think there's real richness in that. Um, so if, if we start off and think about, you know, this topic of cognitive biases and maybe some of the impact on our decision making, if we just start really, really sort of early on at, at the beginning and the basics, what are cognitive biases? How would you describe a cognitive bias to somebody who's not heard the phrase before? So 1975, it was Simon um, Herbert Simon who came up with the idea of heuristics. The idea of heuristics is that their shortcuts are brains take. It was uh, John Tooby uh, who famously said that we have Stone Age brains in our very modern skulls. Um, human beings have evolved so much, James. There's so much going on at any given time. You have your smartphone, your smartwatch, you have your emails, you have a monitor in front of you. So much input from various advances human beings have made, but our brains have not actually literally evolved very much. So we're still working with fairly primitive apparatus. And heuristics refers to the shortcuts our brains take in an attempt to process all of this information that's coming flooding at us. And bias then is the pattern of deviation from either what makes sense or rationality or what is typical in decision making because of heuristics. 
So heuristics are shortcuts we take and how that shows up is bias. Brilliant. That's really helpful. And this idea of heuristics is so powerful, isn't it? You know, I mean, you, you talk very eloquently there about the shortcuts our brains make. And I guess if we didn't have shortcuts, if we didn't have these little rules of thumb, then I, I feel like we have just overload to some extent. You know, if I needed to fully assess every action I made, every decision I made, every interaction I had, I, I don't think I'd be able to function as a person. I think, you know, the decision of making uh, or, or choosing what I have for lunch would involve so many calculations about taste and nutrition and timing and all these things, but I don't think I could ever get anything done at that level. Um, I, I guess, it, you know, clearly there, there's some, some benefits around these areas for having some of these heuristics, but when we bring some of those biases in, I, I guess it implies that sometimes those heuristics don't lead us to maybe the best outcome. And, and in your view, is that a fair assessment? They don't necessarily lead us to the most rational outcome or, or the best sort of rational decision. It, do you think that's fair? And, and are there, I guess, different themes or ways in which these cognitive processes can be uh, leading to different biases? Oh, absolutely. There's at least 180 codified cognitive biases. I think it was Terry Hake who uh, compiled a really lovely visual on that as well. So broadly, our brains jump to shortcuts when there's too much information. That's bounded rationality, right? That's a famous uh, Nobel award-winning philosophy idea. Bounded rationality is, it doesn't matter if you have 27 reasons why you should make a particular decision or 27 things you should consider in order to make a good decision, James. But to your point, if you are hungry, you're probably not going to go through that checklist of 27 things in order to decide on exactly what's the right thing for you to eat. It's convenient. It's easy. You'll grab that sandwich right there in front of you. So one is too much information. The second one is not enough time. Many times these things overlap. We don't have enough time. Our brains are going to take shortcut. Another is not enough meaning. When humongous things happen that are so outside our experience and ability to cope, there's not enough ways in which we can rationalize or make sense of why a loved one died or why children starved. Nobody wants that, but it's happening. So when there's not enough meaning, our brains take shortcuts to make sense of that. That's sense-making. And of course, there's memory. I don't know about you. My memory is bad. So sometimes I'll just go ahead and assume I know something, count on my very faulty memory, and then I go back and in retrospect rationalize it. No, no, I'm sure, pretty sure. That's exactly what happened. So not enough information, not enough time, not enough meaning, not reliable memory. Those are some of the reasons why our brains take shortcuts. Yeah, brilliant. And they're they're all um excellent insights in some of these things and another thing i find for myself sometimes and you you sort of reference it there with with memory i mean we, we all kind of hold on to this sometimes for myself i find it's just tiring trying to be good at stuff right sometimes i just want to like switch off and be on autopilot for a little bit and and life is a bit less depleting if i don't need to be as intentional in what i do and as focused and, and it, with those efforts to be rational so i think the energy it takes to to try and use that thinking part of my brain more and, and rely less on those heuristics is just, it's just tiring sometimes, right? It just kind of wears you out. I can do it for a little while, but if I try and do it for too long, I just end up, you know, getting it wrong or, or throwing my toys out of the pram or getting tired. Absolutely. Um, it's deeply fatiguing to be rational all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, are there any specific cognitive biases that, that like jump to your mind, any specific patterns that 
a range of people have and share that are interesting. I mean, you talked about some of your, your memory. I know that my memory is rubbish as well. I always am a bit of a hero in my memory to some extent, I'm sure. You know, I think I know more. I think I did better. I think I was right all along. I'm sure there's other things like that. Are there any examples or named cognitive biases that you think are really interesting? I'm currently fascinated about our identity, our status, right? When we know to do better, why do we fail to reach our own expectations and values and standards? A great example would be ethicality in corporate decision making. Or for instance, if you've heard recently, many folks say, I'm not racist or I'm not sexist. That's our self-identity. We see ourselves as human beings that value equality and value and respect everybody and so that's our perceived self-identity are the values that we aspire to live by and our daily actions sometimes fall significantly short and we ourselves cannot make peace with that dissonance i find that when therefore in change management as a consultant when you go and try as a coach as a consultant when you go and try help organizations and people make those changes they need to make they are threatened by your information that makes them realize i'm not behaving the way i want to be and that threat that threat makes them push back hard that is not me i don't know what you're talking about that's not who i am that's not what i do yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. This is an area that I'm, I'm actually really interested in. I think it's fascinating. I think that whole identity piece is, is brilliant. And that, like you said, that, that sort of dissonance between the, I guess, in change management terms, what we might talk about as our espoused values um, and our true values or at a personal level, our aspirational values, the, the person that we want to be and that we embed into our identity versus our, our lived values. Those, those divergences are, are so... Um, at times so so striking that if we face into the reality, it can be a, a real blow to us. It can be wounding. It can be damaging to our sense of self, like like you've like you've said there. Now, one of the things that's been in my mind for a little while about um, cognitive biases, and I'm just going to check it out here. We haven't talked about this before. Is when we talk about cognitive bias, we often talk about lack of rationality within what we're doing right so so we're not reaching a rational outcome we're not finding the truth and all of that and and often that's framed as an unhelpful thing and i think in many ways it is unhelpful but i i, I sometimes wonder if part of the benefit of these cognitive biases or, or part of the reason that we have them is really to some extent to protect our ego and our sense of self so if we as individuals are confident if we do remember ourselves as heroes in our journey if we do um, hold ourselves up as role models and our values and behavior. If we do sort of incorrectly assign ourselves these attributes and, and um, you know, uh, beneficial characteristics, it probably frames us in, in a positive state of ego and gives us confidence and assurance and agency and helps us navigate the complexities and conflicts and difficulties of life from a position of assurance in ourselves and what we're doing. So while cognitive biases might not contribute to uh, reaching a, a sort of a, a maximized decision or a purely rational, truthful outcome. I, I feel like there probably are benefits to the individual in terms of uh, sort of preserving and protecting our ego. What do you think about that? Do you think there's, there's any sort of balance in, in what goes on in there? I, I so agree. That's such an important point you're raising, James. Analysis paralysis happens when you hold everything is uncertain. We need some certainty, some foundational 
belief systems that we can operate on so that we hold those things to be true and then we can tackle some of the other problems. Now, the challenge is when we lose awareness of the relevance and significance in terms of importance. A great example would be COVID. We all consider that we are good decision makers, we are well informed, we are well educated, we have good sources of information. We also like our autonomy, we like to, the freedom to make our own decisions. So when all of a sudden, the world as we know it has shuddered to a halt, and there's so much of uncertainty and complexity to consider, is COVID a real thing? How fast is it spreading? How does it spread? What helps stop it? Are vaccines good? Are vaccines healthy? Um, should my child take it? Should my elderly parent take it? There's so much uncertainty. And that's when we retreat very much to being brittle about our belief systems and holding on to our belief because the cognitive dissonance, just the shock of uncertainty, of not knowing what to trust and what we can hold as true, makes us extremely fragile as decision makers. And that explains why there has been so much of uh, disagreement around how COVID should be responded to, either as individuals or as regions or countries, right? So I agree with you. It, there, there is um, a comfort in having surety, or at least some of the things we think we know. You're starting to bring up some of these really interesting points that I, that I think are fascinating about more broadly our beliefs, um, which are so interesting. One of the things I find fascinating about humans in general and and i'm sure many people feel the same is that our ability to sort of craft and shape our own realities is phenomenally powerful and and it's this wonderfully double-edged sword you were talking there when you were speaking about i guess the, the different views that exist in the world in relation to sim similar in relation to single topics like covid and and you talk through the list of things that people have and, and, you know, you said people have got their views, they've got their opinion, they've got surety over their own sources of information, all these things. And, and our ability to, to create this sense of reality based on the world around us is so powerful. It gives us this standing point from which we make our decisions and go forward and, and we do that with good intent. Yet at the same time, we can all hold these different conflicting opinions, which is, um, which is very diff difficult. So that ability to shape a reality is a superpower for humans. So we can sort of rationalize anything um, to some extent and believe all kinds of difficult to believe things, but that sometimes gets us into a little bit of difficulty. I I'd like to sort of broaden what you were talking about there in relation to that COVID example and sort of take it on to think about a, a topic that I know you and I both care about a lot, which is, I guess, sustainability and uh, climate and, and sort of general human impact on the world and, and and I guess it would be good to sort of explore whether you think our, our sort of biases have anything to do with that and, and the diversity of views that exist within our interpretations of what's going on with uh, climate and the environment and things like that and sustainability more more generally so I guess just over to you to get your thoughts on that to start with oh spot on James absolutely so we have our beliefs and we have our emotional responses to topics like this, how we are able to emotionally relate, how we're able to manage and monitor our own emotional responses. And then, of course, you have the third layer of disinformation. There's so much of contradictory, conflicting information out there. How do you know which source is the right one? And finally, of course, we have 
varying abilities to make sense of everything out there. I consider myself rational, you consider yourself rational, and yet two well-educated, well-informed, rational human beings can reach completely different conclusions. And James, um, actually, Daniel Kahneman recently wrote a beautiful book around that, him and uh, Olivier, I think, um, Simon, perhaps his name is, Sidoni, uh, Siboni. Olivia Siboni and Daniel Kahneman wrote this book, Noise, around it's not just cognitive bias, but there's so many factors that impact our decision making. So with regard to climate change, why is it that on one hand, we have knowledge, they're facts, this is data that is provable again and again and again, and it the same thing happens over and over again. It's not a belief system, it's a fact. There is a wealth of knowledge that's provable, there's rationality with which we can understand this on one hand. And on the other, we have our belief systems, our cognitive biases, our social biases, our emotions, the disinformation and our ability to make sense of all of it. It's fascinating to see how people therefore completely differ in their perceptions, in the way they process that information and the way they make decisions and the way they act on them even the way in which they communicate with each other about it. Yeah, super interesting. And and I, I'm not sure we've got space here to get into, you know, the, the ecosystems and the world of the media that we live in. But I know there's yeah. been some great sort of philosophical work on the, you know, the segmenting of our realities into, into the different worlds that we live in based on, you know, the, the plurality of voice that exists in, in popular culture. Um, and, and things like that, you know, we can really find our tribe and, and find all these things. And what impact does it have? You know, if I'm an individual and I'm starting to think, uh, you know, one of these viewpoints, once I start to think that or, or start to, you know, grab onto some of those beliefs, do my behaviors change? Do I look for information that confirms that? Do I avoid other things? Do I, uh, you know, uh, change my views about other people who believe the same things that I'm looking to believe what sort of changes once I start to anchor on to a, a belief rational or, or irrational in terms of my data gathering and interpretation process so I think the broadly with regard to how we respond to some of the bigger burning issues a, a good uh, foundational way to look at it would be four buckets broadly right one is perception bias we talked about this a little bit already how we frame the information, who's telling the story, whose voice is missing from the story, what other take or framing might be possible, and what do I want to do about it? Framing, because we all cherry pick the information. We have a confirmation bias. We want to find information that confirms what we already believe or think. So how do you counter that? Perception bias critical thinking, challenge yourself, always ask the tough questions, ask yourself what other possibility exists, what other way can I look for this information, Am I the way I'm asking questions, the, the sources I'm seeking, the kind of conversations I'm having, the kind of tests I'm doing to check the validity of my beliefs, is this fair and neutral enough or is it heavily biased towards a certain belief because that that's comforting for me. The second bucket is optimism bias perhaps you've heard of this uh dunning-kruger effect the less you know the more confident about it um 
Just so you know, that's something I've suffered from all my life, right? Like, <laughs> I, I know just enough to be dangerous, right? But I say a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And normally that's where I end up. I know just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> so, yes. Join the club. I'm exactly the same. We all are. So facts, how do you, how do, you do that? You audit yourself, audit your sources. Look at your scrolling habits. Look at your reading habits. And take a look at what facts you get from what sources. And can you expand that? Can you balance it out? If you have two or three types of authors, researchers, publications, can you try and look at other sources as well? Have conversations with a variety of people. Seek advice from a variety of demographics. So that's optimism bias. Optimism bias is overestimating how well we know and how much we know and underestimating the ignorance we have. The third bucket then is relevance. This is the cognitive bias we talked about, right? Where we can't handle it when what we think clashes with what's happening around us. Um, our understanding of the importance and relevance of the information that we operate with, when that's challenged, we can't handle it. And that causes cognitive dissonance. So if you've ever tried to argue with somebody about a deeply held belief, you'll notice that after a point, they'll stop engaging with you in the conversation, right? If, if Have you heard of flat earthers? I'm sure you have, James. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, there's a lovely Netflix documentary about flat earthers that's, that's brilliantly fun. Um, yes, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Absolutely. So that's, that's relevance, right? Uh, beyond a point, no matter how much sense you're making, if it clashes severely with what's a, a favorite belief of mine, I'm going to simply disengage with you entirely. Uh, and the th the fourth bucket is, I think this is very relevant for all of us, is ownership, uh, power and, and volition, right? An example would be authority bias. This is very, very typical. I'm from India and, in a and I've been living in Asia for the last seven years. I've been in Singapore. Uh, we tend to have a deference to authority. Uh, and I, as I'm acknowledging, that's a generalization. It's not true for everybody. In my experience, if uh, an actor wears a white coat and says seven out of 10 dentists recommend this brand. I'm automatically without realizing, even though I'm smarter than that, assuming that brand's a good brand to buy. So we defer to authority. We over rely on technology. My mom is the most passionate student of WhatsApp university. She believes that because it comes on WhatsApp, it's likely true. Why is technology? I love that phrase before. Yeah, I've never heard I'd never heard WhatsApp University before. I love it. I think that just sums up so much stuff, right? Like, I mean, brilliant. Yeah, so we tend to over-rely on accuracy through technology, over-rely on authority. And what that does is it disperses responsibility. Um, I believe only what everybody else believes in my social circle. I'm not the only bad person. All right, some mistake happened. Or this is also why, you know, whistleblowers, uh, end up shocking people. It's not that nobody knew that Jimmy Savile was shady or Her Harvey Weinstein was a monster. It's that collective dispersed responsibility of it's not my problem. Um, so we can disengage from that and look away. So this ownership, um, I, what can I do? I'm just a little cog in a gigantic corporate wheel. I really can't um, address climate change. I really can't improve diversity and inclusion single-handedly. I can't cure cancer. I can't get, uh, get, rid, get rid of world hunger, poverty, right? So what can I do about it? So we just shrug it off. So those are the four buckets, perception, optimism, cognitive dissonance or relevance, and ownership.
That's a fabulous list. And I've got so many things I'd, I'd like to come back on on that. I'm going to just rattle off a few things that, that popped into my mind. I scribbled a few few bits down. Um, we, we talked a little bit there at the beginning about, you know, our sources of information and, and something uh, that I think is relevant for this is, you know, is, is sort of linking things back to the, the scientific world a little bit and thinking about the way that the science community validates what it does. And if we think about, in this instance, the scientific method, what, you know, what the process of science is about is, is about trying to prove ourselves wrong, not trying to prove ourselves right. So when we're thinking about validating our thoughts and opinions and, and beliefs, I, I think there's something we can really learn from that world about not seeking to confirm what we believe, but instead trying to disprove what we believe. Uh, and if we can manage that, it's tiring, it's difficult, it's emotional, all those things. I think there's something really, really interesting in that. Um, the, the next thing I wanted to talk a little bit about, and, and this might lead into some other things that, that you'd like to speak about as well, is to do with, I guess, this the, the sort of emotional consequences of challenge. And in a lot of the work that I do outside of you know, this podcast, we, we say that fundamentally humans are highly social beings, or the majority of, of people are really, really social. So our social rules and our social norms and, and our social expectations, and, and you reference your, your sort of upbringing and culture when it comes to deference and, and um, you know, power distance relationships and things like that. Our, our social interactions and social expectations and broader culture have such a big impact on us. I guess when it comes to our experience and interpretation of data and decision-making, I've got a view that we like to be part of a group. It's important to us to feel part of that group, to be welcome, to be accepted, to champion that group. And when it comes time to step in and be a critic of those around you, maybe to initiate conflict or initiate something difficult, to speak up against the you know the willful blindness of people who are not calling out your Jimmy Savills or your Harvey Weinstein's or maybe you know Facebook social engineering or oil dumping in rivers and things. It's really hard to do that, right? It's risky to face into a social group that we're part of and be critical of it. And and myself, I'm trying to become stronger at using my critical voice in all manner of circumstances. But I feel like whenever I, I uh, approach something from a critical perspective, even with the best intentions, I feel like I'm kind of bringing a bad bad smell into the room. I'm like deflating the balloon. I'm, I'm doing all this uncomfortable stuff for, for people. What do you think about that process of challenging those commonly held beliefs and what that feels like and what that, what that tells us about stepping into trying to change some other people's behaviors and change our own? Absolutely, James. You're talking about something that's so profoundly powerful and we almost never realize it. Just as our brains are primitive in their ability to process large amounts of information, we also have an evolutionary instinct to stick with the herd, uh, the bandwagon effect. We feel decidedly uncomfortable bucking the norm and going against whatever is every, everybody else's belief. You, you said it when you talked about the feeling that you got a bad smell into the room, whistleblowing, speaking up, going against the norm, not conforming is a deeply distressing feeling. And we are so hardwired to do it because when we were cave dwellers, if you were not with the herd, you got eaten you died, you starved to death or something bad happened to you, you were best off 
sticking inside that group. So a few different things happen as a result of that bandwagon effect or that peer pressure, the conformity that is deeply ingrained in us. We have, first of all, we tend to over-rationalize everything we do. We always have a good reason to justify why we behave the way we behave. And that's true for everyone we believe is in our in-group, in-group effect. And then everyone that's different from us, the othering that happens, right? The out-group effect. We think of all of the people who are different from us as a monolith. So James and I both are passionate advocates of sustainability. So if James makes a mistake in something he's written, I know James knows better than that. And I'm assuming that must have been a typo. But if a friend of mine who I know works in a Republican publication makes a mistake, I'm thinking, oh my God, there you go. I know they don't believe in it. Probably poorly researched. I bet they're trying to just cause uncertainty and make things. So we just paint everybody who is not in our group as one single monolith. We just simplify, completely reduce them to cliches and generalizations. But we decide that everybody in our in-group is an individual. They're justified in how they're doing it. We assume that they are smart, rational, have good justification. So that's one thing that happens. Social conformity. Second thing is we overestimate how good we are and that everything that happens to us is for a good reason. Everything that happens to other people is because they deserved it. Um, something, they, they must have been late because they're lazy. But I am late because I had a very good reason to be late. Uh, I've and always got a good reason to be late, just, you know, if, if it ever comes <laughs> up, that's exactly true. <laughs> Sorry, go on. And the third one I wanted to talk about is that fear, perhaps the incentive to be a good human being and a rational decision maker is still far outweighed by the fear of loss of status quo. I don't want to be the person that dragged the bad smell in. I want to be liked by my peers. I just want to get along with everybody and be, fo be able to focus on things that I like. If I speak up, if I go against the norm, I'm going to have to be personally, individually responsible for the consequences. And whatever happens, all of that is on me. I no longer have the anonymity and the safety of being one in a crowd. Those are three very powerful reasons why we feel uncomfortable. There's so much discomfort around this. And, and I'd love to get into some of the, the sort of the conflict sides that, that you touch on as well and, and, and bring this into a little bit more of a set of practical applications in a minute. But I, I've got, I guess, another question that sits within this. I think when we listen to the world media and think about, you know, the impacts of climate and sustainability and all these types of things, we tend quite often to reduce through this us and them, this othering process that you speak about in group out groups and all that kind of stuff. We, we tend, I, I believe, to reduce others to caricatures of themselves and attribute to them sort of blandly overall negative statements. And I guess my question is, do you think that people on whatever side of an argument in, in instances like this are doing things from malicious intent? Or, or do you think that generally speaking, people are trying to do what they think is right for them and their communities based on their interpretation and their access to information and their sense making and decision. So I, I guess my question is, are there evil people who are out to do bad things or is everybody trying to do something good? We're just doing it in different ways. 
so I think that's one of the most important things we all need to get more comfortable with is that complexity and uncertainty is something that binds all of us. We are together in that complexity, uncertainty, volatility, ambiguity. And that means that for the exact same problem, your perception of it, the way you process the information and the way you problem solve for it and the actions you recommend and the priorities you have when you're developing solutions can be completely different from mine. And yet you and I can both be right. Add to that cultural context. You're sitting there in the UK um, and I'm in Scotland and I'm here in, in Singapore. Our time of day, weather, everything is different, political climate. That influences who you are and how you show up. And that's absolutely right for you. Just as my own context, upbringing, current circumstances inform who I am and how I show up. And that's absolutely right for me. And that way, James, the uh, the COP26 that is happening in your neighborhood is wonderful, isn't it? Um, it is the ultimate conference of parties. If you thought of multi-party negotiations with extreme complexity and uncertainty, with every party having its own perspective, its own lens, its own priorities, it's beautifully exemplified by COP26. So how are all of these diverse organizations, act activists, corporations, governments, non-profit organizations coming together to tackle as one a burning issue of our times? climate change it's possible all of us can do it as well it's doable and i just wanted to add i think um a great for me a great way uh, i find helps uh, explain this to individuals to corporate executives i coach and train is the idea of scarf s c a r f so s is of course status we all crave it Whatever your status is, you want to keep it. I want to keep mine. And when I insult your status or I feel that you feel you're you're being violated or uh, threatened in some way, you respond in a certain way. So that status, certainty, we all need it. Um, autonomy, we want the freedom to make our own choices. We respond poorly when our autonomy is taken away. Relatedness, I want to feel that you and I are in the same boat. If I feel you're more privileged than me somehow or you have advantages that I don't have access to, I no longer want to work with you. And finally, fairness. Um, so if all of us feel we are acting together in a related way and that the outcomes are going to be fair to both you and me, we are much more inclined to work together. So those are some of the things that we can look at when we're trying to bring people together and help them overcome their tribalism or their emotional uh, inability to comprehend all of this and bring them together despite the uncertainty and complexity. Yeah, and, and calling out those different categories of social threat and, and, and reward mechanisms that exist in um, in interpersonal relationships is, is really helpful in this context. And it's exciting that COP's just next door. It's going to be in Glasgow. I'm in Edinburgh, but it's going to be in Glasgow pretty soon, which is which is super exciting. Um, I've got a question. What would happen if we all just ended up thinking the same thing? Like, what, what, what impact would that have? Is there any benefit in all this plurality of view? What, what do we gain out of having all these different views? And, and what would it be like if we all had one single homogenous view. Have you got any thoughts on that? I think I 
it's fairly clear and obvious well first of all that not only is diversity of thought perception priorities vital to a healthy healthy world it's also practically impossible to have that kind of homogeneity perhaps what is useful to consider is while all of us should maintain our authentic individual viewpoints and avoid groupthink at all costs what we can do is at least directionally align if all of us can once in a while at least strategically embrace a human lens and say yes i have my own priorities and my own way of things that i prefer to do there is a larger context right now of sustainability so let's align directionally on that goal and allow ourselves autonomy to address the priorities the way we wish and it is that sort of alignment that is perhaps useful not to completely eliminate diversity but to bring us all together and appreciate and acknowledge differences respect them leverage them but leverage them in a way that we can align together to create sustainable action cool that's good that that's helpful i think there is so much benefit in diversity of thought and opinion and background and approach and all of these things but i think if you can apply that towards a more unified goal as as you're saying i think that's um that's a great ambition to have particularly in this uh, sustainability space um i'd like to just ask a couple of questions of you about how we sort of make this particularly useful and practical to individuals in the workplace you know so we've got you know individuals who are i guess individual contributors in a workplace we've got people who are leaders um at the top of organizations who can set policy and influence things like that and we've got you know managers in organizations who are working you know managing a team managing stakeholders uh, managing that tension between you know looking after themselves and their team and achieving goals and things like that um if we think about what we've talked about for the different biases that we have what what might say a manager in a team be able to do to think about the impact of biases within their operational leadership of a team and the way that the team works is there anything that they could do to um maybe increase awareness of biases challenge some of the biases that are there and and maybe is there anything they could do to to bring out and celebrate some of those softer aspects of conflict and challenge that exist that lead to better outcomes so that's fantastic i i was thinking as well that we've spoken at, with such a birds eye view i i'd love very much to discuss um, how we can a great example for me of taking all of our discussions around better decision making and cognitive bias to how can we make measurable progress is do you remember back when cfcs were a big deal right the the emissions are yeah. caused a big hole in the ozone layer that was actually a beautiful success story in in collective global action around an urgent environmental issue so what did we do there as as change uh, consultant and and a person working in learning and development james i, I bet you recognize this you create a clear problem make a, a specific bad guy that everyone understands an easy to understand clearly established problem what was the problem the problem was things that we use every day like hairspray cans emitted cfcs which is a bad guy and what did that do that 
created a hole in the ozone layer. So there's a clear bad guy causing a clear problem. And how can we solve it? Simply stop using products that emit CFCs. So there was a clear action. And we followed that up with announcing the progress we were making. It's getting better. It'll close by this year. We need to continue this effort. So there was an, a, f- a finite uh, nest to that timeline. It's not endless burden. I know that I'm motivated because I know I'm specifically targeting minimizing use of CFCs as an individual when I'm doing my hair, blow drying my hair in the morning. Do I really want to use that, that can of hairspray because I can help close the ozone layer? I know I can do this. So measurability, clear action, clear problem setting actually had a tremendous impact in how we tackle that problem. And while not every solution is handily uh, packageable in, in such a clear way, as change managers, we know that the majority of people are people who are not neither against you nor fully with you. It's just that they're either under-informed or not engaged. Not engaged doesn't mean disengaged or against you. And so if we target those people, it really helps make big changes that we need. So how do we do that? One is as an individual, you can become aware of your bias. When do you get triggered? Are you a a more impatient decision maker when you're tired? How do you respond to hunger? When someone accuses you of being foolish or emotional or untrustworthy, do you get particularly incensed? Become aware of your bias. It's a beautiful website, of course, which I'm sure you know, James. It's the Harvard Implicit Project. Um, it's, it's the world's leading authority on unconscious bias. They have a variety of tests you can take. So just go to Project Implicit and check your biases out. They do give you a specific reading in a specific point of time of how you're responding in that time. But it's still interesting way to surface your biases. The second one then is do a quick audit of your sources of information. Make a list of all the people you trust when you have an important decision to make. Make a list of your favorite publications that you read for information. Make a list of your authors. Who are the last 10 authors you read? Take a good hard look at that list. Is there homogeneity as you've pointed out, James? Can we diversify that? And the next one then is critical thinking. You know, most of us only respond to issues if it's a great acronym for that is pain, personal, abruptly impacting us. It's either immoral, decent, it offends us at a very deep level or it's immediacy, right? Now, it hurts me now. That's when we take action. So can we step out of our own self-obsession and ask really critical thinking questions. How can I help my team today? Yes, I will care about introverts being silent in the meeting if I'm ever spoken over. That gets my goat. But as a leader, as a team leader, can I actually pay attention to whether there is groupthink because some assertive, outgoing people make most of the points in the meeting? Even though I'm one of them, can I step out of that and critically think, what can I do to encourage asynchronous thinking? How can I encourage everybody participating and adding to the ideas? How can we pay attention that we don't overly anchor our decisions to one person who's outspoken? But ask all of them. 
these are some things we can do uh, in terms of having better meetings, being better people managers, being better professionals. And finally, I think one key thing is all of our discussions around diversity, inclusion, decision making, climate change, poverty, they tend to be all doom and gloom and we respond poorly to that. So if we can celebrate successes, create achievable goals, small little goals, by the end of this week, I want to have spoken with at least two of my colleagues who I don't normally run into. I'd love to know their opinion about this latest project I'm doing. By the end of this month, I want to have had conversations with two of my most quiet teammates, people who traditionally don't speak up. I want to try and run meetings completely differently and see what happens. So just put yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, little, little nudges to remind yourself when you put your deck together, who are you quoting? Who are you citing? What images are you putting out there on your deck? These are little things you can do that help shift it just a little bit, but that then creates positive reinforcement because I did a small little thing. I feel better. And when I'm in a more upbeat frame of mind, I'm more incentivized to do the right thing. And finally, we all respond to virtue signaling. We all love it. So let's make it a fun thing. Um, let's use the social platform we're all on. If it gets measured, it gets managed, right? So if we can all make ethical decision-making, sustainability-focused actions um, at every level, something that can be gamified and there's then strong reasons why we compete with each other to do the right thing. Those are some things I can think of we can do at the workplace. What do you think, James? Well, I was just going to say, I think that, that's a brilliant list. I, and I really like the, you know, the the calling out of the positivity and focusing on the positive. I think that's such an important thing um, that we can do. Um, when you started that, one of the things that you started to speaking about was, you know, within things like Project Implicit and things like that, developing a, a deeper sense of, of ourselves. And, and I think for me, uh, so much of what I think affects our you know, our, our performance, for lack of a better word, in the workplace comes back to self-awareness and intentionality. So I think um, as a great starting point, I think developing that self-awareness is, is really important. Uh, understanding our, our biases, understanding our, our our values, understanding what matters to us, understanding our ways of working um, and our preferences for our social interactions can really help us um, bring uh, more insight to what we do and to change what we do. So, so for me, I think that's a great, a great starting point. Um, I've got one last question for you, which is what might we be able to do as leaders and managers to help educate our teams about some of these cognitive biases and the way that they work and, and share this knowledge that, that you've brought to life in this conversation with our team members to help them understand the, the richness of what's here and to help them you know, gain those personal insights and, and maybe drive some changes uh, themselves in their behavior and decision-making? James, that's a great question. And I like the point you made before you asked the question, which was self-awareness and self-reflection. Today, more than ever, as leaders, we need to be mindful. We need to slow down and really critically consider what are we looking at what is missing, what else might be possible, and 
who is going to benefit from my actions who are, what are my priorities what are the stakeholders i should consider so slowing down would be the number one thing especially around important decisions that involve multiple people slow down a tad as much as heuristics is helpful and we're all working at breakneck speed there's something very powerful in the system to thinking that daniel kahneman told us about so once you slow down the second thing you can certainly do is do that audit do that audit of your own biases and sources and then as a group you can consciously pledge to avoid groupthink what can you do as individuals and as a team to ensure you are brainstorming and really listening to each other and not attaching irrelevant information in irrelevant importance or weight to a particular opinion but really considering with open curiosity all possible ideas there is no bad idea and finally i think there's always subjective value right we're all biased let's acknowledge that human beings are biased machines but there is also some objectivity that is possible so can somebody in the team be an objective observer of the decision so their job is only their kpis are only around ensuring that the decisions are made in the most rational way possible these are some of the small things we can do unconscious bias training gets a bad rap james because it becomes a quick check the box activity a trainer comes in explains how bias works and then we walk away thinking that's clear to me now i'm going to be an awesome decision maker because i kind of knew i was great at it already now i know how to be even better but it any conscious ongoing elevation of our behavior needs mindful application constantly working at it and that takes patience that takes commitment and finally I think let's celebrate those who do do it. It's uncomfortable, as you pointed out, when they bug the trend, do something brave, and it's inconvenient sometimes. But can we stay with them anyway and celebrate it? Because then it encourages more and more people to make that committed, courageous change. Brilliant. That's a that's a wonderful list. Um, in the interest of time, I'm I'm going to wrap up there. I think that's been a great conversation. Um, we've got some some wonderful insights there. Um, before we finish up. Would you be able to say a little bit about how people can learn more about you and the things that that you're working on? Yes, James, thank you so much. I had so much fun in our conversation today. Um you can reach me at my website thehumanconversation.com. I love having conversations. I think we need to rise above our differences and be humans when we converse. So that's what the human conversation is about. I'm also fairly active on LinkedIn. You can find me by my name, Kaumudi Goda. and i look forward to hearing from all of you thank you so much james for introducing me to your wonderful audience thanks that was a fantastic conversation thank you so much thanks for listening to this episode don't forget as well as these podcasts we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that everyone can attend you can sign up for these and our newsletter the wow mail on our website www.worldofwork.io that's www.worldofwork.io